This podcast is brought to you by G Adventures, the 2018 Escorted Touring Company of the Year, as recognised by the Australian Travel Awards. At G Adventures, they help you connect to the world through small group travel. On each of their tours, you will get to know locals every step of the way, from the places you roam, to the hotels you stay at, to the restaurants where you enjoy your meals. Because G Adventures believe it's only by exploring our world that you understand how great it and its people can be. Our world deserves more you. See gadventures.com.au to find out where in the world they can take you. Hey there, Nathan here from Dumbo Feather. This week on the podcast, we're sharing a conversation with a writer and teacher who's been enormously influential in my life and the lives of thousands of others around the world. His name's Parker Palmer, and he works at the intersection of activism, social change, and spirituality. Three decades ago, Parker helped establish the Centre for Courage and Renewal, which runs programs for people to come together in community and learn to lead from within. Parker's words and teachings speak to a deeper truth about how we show up in the world as whole human beings and how we can contribute to our collective healing. His latest book is On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity and Getting Old. And that's what's informed our conversation together, clarity and perspective in eldership. We speak just weeks before Parker's 80th birthday. Well, let's, um, let's begin with writing. I thought a good place to start would be with reflecting on this process of writing, which you've been doing all your life, of course, and not just, just writing but telling stories you know, with this beautiful vulnerability and, and authenticity and open-heartedness in a way that has inspired and moved people, including myself, you know, so deeply. And I think also that the kind of storytelling you do has been really healing in your life, and I've, I've seen that in the book, the most recent book. And so I just wanted to start by hearing about your relationship with writing and, and maybe how it's changed over the decades. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Um, yes, writing has always been my way of exploring what's going on inside of me. Um, and, of course, the discipline of writing, if you do it that way, is to then come from that inner place out into the world in a way that leaves space for other people to find their own stories. So I think the art of storytelling that I've tried to master over the years is how do I tell a story about my own life, an inner story that often has outer dimensions, in a way that doesn't breathe up all the oxygen in the room, but gives other people actually the freedom to breathe on their own and find out more about whatever is going on inside of them and how it connects to their their external lives. So I suppose a quick way of putting it is that uh, writing has always been very therapeutic for me in the generic sense of that term, therapy meaning wholeness or, or health or the journey toward wholeness and health. I've spent about half of my life as a pretty in-the-world person uh, as an educator, as a community organizer, as an activist, as the founder of a nonprofit, uh, 
a, a teacher, etc. But um, I've I've always been right down the middle on introvert, extrovert, and I'm quite sure that if I didn't have the the contemplative dimension that um, that writing provides to kind of sort and sift through all that external experience and find, find learn more about what kind of imprint it's left on me and and how to and, and mine try to mine the nuggets that 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 may be there um i i, I would have gone nuts from all the externalized life um so writing has has been very very important i think you know i think you asked how it's changed over time and i think probably one of the changes uh, for me has been uh well first of all and and, and most fundamentally learning how to stay even uh, closer to this inner motivation to write that I was talking about rather than feeling that as maybe I did a little in my early years that I needed to suss out what the audience wanted, what the readers wanted, um, which of course distracts one from the inner agenda that you really want to pursue. But pretty early on in in my writing career, um, I I learned an important lesson because the very first publisher I went to, and I didn't publish my first book until I was forty. So it's now forty years later, and I've published book number ten. Um, but in with that very first book, the the first persons that talked to me and from the publisher were, of course, the marketing people, and they said. Uh, who is this book for? And I said, whoever buys it. <laughs> and <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> they said, well, you, you, you know, Parker, that's not really very helpful to us because we have to aim it at, at target audiences. And I said, well, truly, I, I try very hard not to write toward a target because then I'm writing toward a whole set of assumptions or imaginings about what this or that group wants or needs to hear. So I really can't tell you who it's for. All I can tell you is where it's from. And it's from the deepest place that I can reach in me. I'm figuring that if I can write from that place, I have at least a fighting chance to reach a similarly deep place in other people. And and that that which that came to me, as I say, pretty early in my writing career. I think I've just gotten, become more faithful over the years to adhering to that, to that notion. And in fact, I have found that I'm absolutely no good at predicting who the audience will be, uh, because the books end up having been read by many different kinds of people in, uh, who come from places in the world, from life experiences, and from walks in life that I can't possibly imagine. Mm. That's exactly it. I think it's less about the demographic of a person, the kind of the superficial qualities of a person, and more so about where that person is at, where their inner life is at. And there's no way of telling <laughs> exactly what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, there, there isn't any way of telling. And at the same time, I think the, the most an interesting paradox is that the deeper we are willing to go into the well of our own experience, 
the more likely we are to hit the aquifer that feeds all the wells, you know, yes, that, yes. that groundwater, that, that common source, because it turns out that at that level, we human beings, despite our demographic differences, really do have a lot in common. Yeah. Yeah. There's this beautiful quote by Cheryl Strayed, the memoirist. She says that when we're speaking with the truest, most intimate voice, we are speaking with the universal voice. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think one of the, you know, one of the great mistakes in, in our, in academic life or in an intellectualized culture is this notion that we're going to find commonality at high levels of abstraction when actually the air up there is too thin to breathe. Yeah. It's not, not fit for human habitation. I think we find commonality by diving deep rather than getting in the hot air balloon and going up, up, up. Mm. I was surprised to learn that writing came to you as an accident. You said, it came as somewhat of an accident and yet not an accident at all. Yeah, um, right. So I was the first person in my family to go to college. And I um, I just did not come from any sort of intellectual heritage. I, you know, I came from people who valued education. But they were either blue-collar folk or, or business folk. Uh, my dad had a high school education. My grandparents had less than that. And, um, so I, you know, I never had a, a, a self-image as someone who would write a book or who even belonged in some of the institutions that I ended up attending, like the University of California at Berkeley, where I, where I did a PhD. I always felt like kind of an outsider, even a fraud in those settings and kind of walked around with the feeling that if they were found out how dumb I am, they'll, they'd kick me out, you know. But um, I never let on, so they let they let me <laughs> they let me stay, and um, I I you know man I I, I was uh, I think I always been powerfully drawn to learning and and so I did start writing in my twenties and and but I uh, I never imagined publishing anything, um, and as you know, there's a story in the book about how at nearly age 40, um, I, had, I gave a lecture to a class, and um, the class was on Thomas Merton, one of my great heroes. And there, I had a student in that class who said, Would, could I have a, a typescript of, of the lecture you just gave? And I said, sure. And I Xeroxed it and gave it to her. And she walked away with it. She just said, I really like the, the lecture a lot. Turns out she had an uncle who was an editor at a small uh, press at Notre Dame University. And she sent it to him. And pretty soon I'm hearing from this uncle who's saying, really liked your lecture on, on Merton. He's pretty much in our wheelhouse at this small Catholic press. Um, would you mind if we ran it in our monthly newsletter? And I said, oh, my goodness, mind. I'd be delighted. And so out it went. And a, a couple months later, he wrote again, and he said, we've had a tremendous positive reaction to that. Do you have any other essays in, in your files? Well, I'd been writing essays for the last 15 years. <laughs> Nobody was interested in them, but I, you know, I very thoughtfully said, well, I think I might you know, manage to scramble a few things together. <laughs> and I spent an evening pulling, I don't know, 10 or 12 out of the files 
long story short, eight months later, nine months later, I'm holding a copy of my first book, which was a completely unintentional book, which, which he had pulled together as, as a collection of my essays. Wow. And you'd written those essays for yourself? I had, really, yeah. I, I just loved writing because, uh, again, it, it was... It was so it was such a life giving exercise for me as in sorting things out and um, sorting out my own life and my own experience. And I just remember when the package came with that first book in it, um, I thought, well, I guess I can write a book. <laughs> I, I guess I, I guess I've been writing a book all along. I just didn't know it. And then, and the next couple of books came pretty quickly after that because I guess oh, they it, did. Okay. Yeah, it, I guess it. So that book was published in '79 or '80, and the next one came in '81, and the next one came in '83. It happened that I got a sabbatical in there and and had plenty of time to write a, a couple of books in a very supportive environment. Yeah. So. Yeah, so I guess it didn't take much to light my fuse. And, but then, you know, it, uh, I sort of ran out of ideas, and it took me a while to restock, <laughs> restock the pot. <laughs> and I was doing other things in the meantime. I want to talk about being on the brink now. I love this title. And the perspective you have at this point of your life, as mm -hmm. you say, have turned 80 or about to turn 80? I, I'll I'll turn eighty on February twenty eighth, so it's coming oh, soon. soon. Oh, how special! Yeah. And and you write how you were surprised by the fact that you like being old. Yeah, you've lost exactly. the capacity for <laughs> you've lost the capacity for multitasking. You're done with big and complex projects, and more aware yeah. of the loveliness of simple things. I mean, yeah. that's really everything. Uh, do you think we have to be wait to be old to get there to older? To <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't think so. I think I'm a slow learner, and a lot of people learn faster than I do. But you know, I, I I also think that for a lot of us, and I think part of being old, for me at least, is is looking back and realizing that you know you did what you had to do when you had to do it, and uh, and so as you know, one of the themes of the book is that. Um, I like being on the brink because I can look back and I can see how everything fits mm. and that what I've done over all these years is to weave a fabric of life. Um, and even the, the threads that I put in 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years ago that I maybe in the moment wished I could rip, rip out, um, they somehow contribute now to the overall resilience of that fabric and even to its, its beauty. I think Joseph Campbell once said, there is no work of art without the dark thread running through it. Yeah. And I, I think I now understand what what he meant by that. So I, uh, being on the brink means looking back with this, this sense that I, I, have, I have nothing to regret. I, I don't want to live out whatever years are left to me carrying burdens of regret for things about which I can do nothing. I'd, I'd, I'd rather look back and say, okay, if I've learned what I learned, what I needed to learn from that, uh, from that failure, that challenging, painful experience, you know, then I can count it as a win. And, um, and it is part of that, that fabric of resilience. 
And, and also from the brink, I can look around uh, at where I, we are now with, with real appreciation for, for courage and, and human resilience. The, the, this, you know, this sense that there's a lot of people out there for whom just getting up in the morning is a brave act. Um, life is tough for a lot of folks. And I, I have a, a clearer vision of that. Uh, I'm, I'm more open-eyed to that, I think, than I used to be. And look around with great gratitude for the gift of life and realizing that while there, there are old people who bemoan their age, my attitude is I'm one of the lucky ones. Um, mm. In the course of human history, not a lot of folks made it this far. I have mm. friends who didn't make it this far. And so I'm one of the lucky ones. And I count my blessings in that regard on a, on a, on a daily basis. And from the brink, I can also look ahead. And I, I find myself doing that in, in a way that is surprisingly free of fear. Um, as I say in the book, I have no bad memories of wherever it is I came from. And so I have no reason to be afraid of wherever it is I'm returning to. And since I do love the natural world, one thing for certain is that I'm returning to the world of nature, you know, the, the, the lakes of northern Minnesota and Canada, the northern lights, the stars in the sky, which, you know, have, keep recirculating the same atoms that all of this started with, which are also in us. And I, I just, I think, okay, if, if that's where you go, Parker, you know, for renewal, every year as i do go to the wilderness that's what you're going back to so what's the big deal yeah that's incredible and i had a question here about fear and it's funny you say that because i think fear is such a, a narrative for our elder years and what happens next and i think that fear comes from as we know the ego which is another thing you write so beautifully about and just hearing your reflections on not having the fear at this stage of your life yeah, that dissolving of the ego in your own life I think that's that's right. I mean, I think that's you know daily work because mm. there is, a, as you know, there there's a piece of this thing called ego that we kind of need. I don't want to dis ego altogether, but there's the overweening ego that says that you know I'm the most important show in town, when in fact that's a long way from the truth. Um, I, I I find a lot in nature that reminds me as i say in the book that i'm i am one among many and i think in the book that i i recount one of the most powerful experiences i've ever had in the natural world <clears throat> which came when i was hiking in the high desert in new mexico uh, at the foot of the sangre de cristo mountains and i was at a place out in the desert where there were no human structures or activities in sight I was very aware of that because I was trying to keep from getting lost. So I was looking for natural landmarks that would guide me back to the to the cabin where I was staying. And um, all of a sudden, in this on this high desert, on this brilliant um, high desert day, I, I had this experience, which I guess is as close to a mystical experience as I've ever had, 
of um, realizing that the cosmos was on the one hand utterly indifferent to me. I mean, I was smaller than a speck. And at the same time, in a totally compatible, paradoxical way, was ultimately accepting and even forgiving of me. And it was this great sense of peace that came over me um, that I was, you know, one among the many and that the indifference and the acceptance and forgiveness are sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, and that was, you know, that was a state beyond fear that I have never forgotten. You mentioned um, this idea that you are one among many, and there's this beautiful poem you quote by Milos. It's about Milos, love. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a poem called Love by the Nobel Prize winning Polish poet Czesław Milos. And it, it goes as follows. Love means to learn to look at yourself the way one looks at distant things, for you are only one thing among many. And whoever sees that way heals his heart without knowing it from various ills. A bird and a tree say to him, friend. Then he wants to use himself and things so that they stand in the glow of ripeness. It doesn't matter whether he knows what he serves. Who serves best doesn't always understand. I love that. I love that poem. Um, and there's a lot to chew on in, in, that, in that poem. But to me, it, I think its basic meaning is realize that a bird and a tree want to befriend you if you are willing to see yourself as one thing among many. And if you're willing to do that, all of us, the bird, the tree, you, me, stand in the glow of ripeness because we're not getting in the way of the light. And, and I love the last lines, it doesn't matter whether this, in, this person knows what he or she serves, who serves best doesn't always understand. And I've found that to be profoundly true in my own, in my own life and work. The lecture you give that you think is a complete bomb because the audience reaction isn't terrific. And a couple of years later, someone comes up to you and says, that lecture changed my life. You know? And it turns out that, unbeknownst to you, that, that person was why you were there. <laughs> and, and the other 300 people fade away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And poetry is something that I've only just come to discover in uh, the last couple of years in my life is something, I don't know, incredibly potent and, and healing and how it forces us to pay attention to the mm. language and a particular view of the world. And I know it's had a really rich role in your life as well. And I, I think you've, you've, you've had poetry in your life for a long time. Well, I have. I, until I was in my mid-30s, I don't remember how you, old you are, Nathan. Uh, early 30s, yeah. Yeah, so I was about your age, and I had the I had the gift of taking a poetry class from a, a really brilliant oh, okay. poetry teacher when I was about thirty five, and I had taken a year off to return, 
to the student role at this adult study center, this Quaker Living Learning Community, where I ended up spending another decade as dean of studies. But when I was a stu- an adult student there, and and you know suddenly out of the teacher role and back in the student seat, um, I I had this brilliant poetry teacher who taught poetry in a circle, dialogue style, all never sort of saying. What did the poet mean? Which is an academic exercise. Mm, but mm, what is mm. what does the poem mean to you? What does it evoke in you? How do you intersect your own experience with the experience uh, in the poem? And that changed everything for me. And I started to appreciate um, what Emily Dickinson, the great poet Emily Dickinson, meant when she said, uh, "Tell the truth, but tell it slant," because <laughs> the truth is. Her, her 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 little poem goes on to say that if you run at the truth headlong, you're going to be blinded by it. It's too bright for your eyes. But if you look at it on the slant, and if, if you receive the truth on the slant, you might have a, a chance to catch some of it. And I, I think what, that's what the poets do. They tell the truth, but tell it slant. And they give us a chance to look at things out of the corner of our eye and I remember learning one time that astronomers will will tell you that that uh, there are certain stars you can see in the night sky without without a telescope because if if you use the corner of your eye to look toward them rather than the pupil because there's more receptors uh, in that part of the eye, poetry taps into all of those receptors that uh, prose yeah. kind of evades. Yeah, well, I, I wrote down a quote in, from the book. You said that good poets have a way of sneaking up on me to deliver messages I might have tried to dodge if I'd seen them coming. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not quite what That's you true. were saying, but I still love that because <laughs> it just yeah. it yeah. does. It forces us to see ourselves. Yeah. That's we right. <laughs> we might yeah, that's people. right. And I'm glad I figured that out <laughs> by my mid-30s, you know. It's changed my life. Yeah. So I also wanted to talk about, you know, I've, this is coming from my own experience, you know, my super serious early 30s is what I would describe them as. Um, The examined life for me so far has been quite heavy and quite heady and burdensome at times. And, you know, you're always calling yourself out and questioning where a particular pattern comes from and trying to put yourself in others' shoes and, I know that this is the most important work that we can offer the world right now, but I, I, I want to know what your thoughts are on how we can, how it cannot be such a heavy and burdensome process. And I love this quote you have in the book. You say, "Angels can fly because they take themselves lightly." Hmm. Yeah, G.K. Chesterton, I think, said that. Mm. Yeah, angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. That's something that it took me a long time to learn. And again, I, I, I go back to my point that when I look back, I realize, you know, I did what I needed to do at the time. And for a while, apparently, I, what I needed to do was haul around some heavy burdens, um, which made, it, made me a difficult person for myself to live with, and probably for some other people too, but it's what I needed to do, and um, and so I did it and got some benefit from it. Um, 
as you know, I also am a person, I've written and talked about this a fair amount, that I'm a person who's experienced three deep dives into depression. I think part of it is, is overthinking your life uh, for some people. I, I, I think that was an element or a factor in my case. Um, but the, so, so the examined life um, is, is, in fact, about you know, digging into your past, rooting stuff up. And when you start it, there, there's, there's so much buried because it took you some years to, to get to, to, the, to, the, to the work and, and to, to understand that you needed to figure out these, these, the underground root system of whatever it is that is, is um, contributing to your current state of malaise or misdirection or lostness or, or, or whatever it, it may be. But uh, I, I think that, you know, that I got some good help along the way, I think, from thoughtful elders in, in sort of saying, you know, at the same time, Parker, you have to cut yourself some slack. Um, you, you're, you're a human being, and human beings go through stuff that is heavy and challenging to uproot and examine. But you have to be able to say what what these elders said to me. You have to be able to say to yourself, and I, as I say in the book, these are some of the best words I've ever heard in my life. Which is, okay, so you're struggling, you're in pain. Welcome to the human race. Uh, you know, you're, you, that means you're one of us. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're not, you're you're not Superman and. Even though angels fly because they take themselves lightly, don't imagine that you can fly above everything. And as time goes on and, and you, you, you live your way into these questions, as Rilke said, you also live your way without knowing it into answers. Um, and the answers often can't be articulated, but somehow the burden lifts. You know, the... The, the saying that goes right alongside the unexamined life is not worth living, as, as someone brilliantly flipped it one time, is the unlived life is not worth examining. Ah, beautiful. And, yeah. and, I, and I love that flip, because, and, and it connects directly with your question, your probe, because if, you've, if you live your life as fully as you know how in the moment, you're going to get into trouble um, you know, it, your, your era, you, you move beyond pretending, you, you move into authenticity. And that's, that can take you into some really tough territory as your, your inner, more of your inner self emerges and shows up in the world. But ultimately, ultimately, I believe, I, I, from my own experience, I think I know that the more fully we can be ourselves in the world as we are, um, the the more at home we're going to be. Um, I think there are two drives that have been true in my life. One is the drive to to feel at home in my own skin, and the other is the drive to feel at home on the face of a very diverse, complex, and rich place called planet earth one of the things that i like to say when i 
talk about this particular subject is that it it's really clear to me that there are a number of painful ways to die but the saddest way perhaps to die um, would be with the thought as you left the world that you never showed up fully in the world as your true self that would be very sad but if i can feel that i made my best effort at showing up with really the only gift i have for the world which is the self i was created to be um, then i think i can check out with a sense of satisfaction that i wasn't wasting my time or anybody else's that is the message that everyone needs to hear right now and a part of me gets frustrated that not everyone is going to get to hear that and yeah i wish i wish more people got to wrap their ears around i share your sadness that there are many people who who won't understand that and who will live masked lives or behind a wall um, their whole lives and experience that sadness over a long lifetime, not just when they, when they check out. But it, my thought about that is this, this is inner work that each of us has to do for ourselves and w there are forms of community that can help us do that inner work. And and so I think, you know, the task for some of us, and as you know, I've turned my, uh, some of my attention, my time and energy to this task, is creating those kinds of communities or circles or pockets of possibility where we can, in fact, uh, gently um, support each other in that in that inner search that is that's so, so very, very difficult. Yeah, yeah. And what I've loved about your work and, and the Centre for Courage and Renewal is um, that, that you've shared these toolkits with us around holding people in community. And I've found that particularly useful. In fact, since the last time we spoke, it would have been four or five years ago, um, and you shared your experiences of depression with me, um, some people in my life have come to experience quite deep depression and anxiety. And I've found not only your words, but also what, what you put on the website and the centre so useful for befriending these people and being able to support them. So I'm, I'm really grateful for, for that. Well, sharing. thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That means a lot. You know, I've always had, I've had a very deep belief from a very young age that I, I was called not only to generate ideas and put them on paper or into the air with talks and so forth, but I was also called to put wheels on ideas as often as I, as I could. So to actually create vehicles that people could use that are animated by these ideas, but that people could, could drive in, in their own directions towards their own goals. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't have any idea where it is that other people ought to be headed. That's their call to make. But to provide them with with a vehicle, um, a communal vehicle that can you know support those those journeys that we all have to make is is to me a part of my calling. Yeah, so special. I also wanted to just explore. You know, one of the most inspiring things about you is the advocacy and, and contribution to cross generational um, work and conversation. 
And you say that when old and young connect, it's like joining the poles of a battery. And I think that's also one of the greatest learnings that you can, we can have right now in our time is, is this more of sharing of wisdom between, between different generations. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, uh, thank you for picking that up because, as you know, that's a really, really important theme mm-hmm. to me. Um, I tell several stories in the book about how heavily influenced I've been by people who are literally half my age. Um, one of them being this wonderful uh, writer named Courtney Martin, um, from whom I stole the title of the book, On the Brink of Everything. She, Courtney wrote a beautiful essay that appeared at, at the On Being website. Um, this is an essay about um, watching her young daughter, Maya, who then was, I think, 18 months old, discover the world through the eyes of an innocent child. And Courtney was kind of looking at the world through Maya's eyes and realizing how amazed Maya was by everything because she was seeing it for the first time or seeing it in a new way. And, and Courtney in this essay says, Maya is on the brink of everything. And I, I read those lines. And I, I, I just stopped and I thought, Oh my gosh, I'm, I think I was 76 at the time. I have, I have this in common with an 18 month old girl that I too am on the brink of everything and I'm seeing everything with new eyes. And, and so I wrote to Courtney and I said, you know, I'm putting this book together about aging. Can I steal that line from you? And she very graciously said, of course I could. Um, it, to me, this um, this intergenerational exchange is is absolutely essential to my well being as an old person, and and it saddens me greatly that that we have these age these very strong age segregation structures in our society, where you know elderly people are actually tucked away. And and often tuck themselves away uh, before they really need to, um, and are, are are systematically cut off from opportunities to interact with younger folks. It's very exciting to see certain developments in in, in the more enlightened parts of our country, where, for example, a college will collaborate with the with the building of a facility for aging and, and ill people on the edge of its campus. And students can do oral history projects, you know, with, the, with survivors of World War II or Vietnam or whoever, or, or even of the Great Depression. And, and elders, elders can teach and feel valued for their experience. And they can also ask questions of the young about what's going on these days you know and and the the, the benefit is, is is huge but one of the things i say in the book is that i really think the power lies in the hands of the elders to cross that that fear gap where where the where the elders are saying they couldn't these young people couldn't possibly be interested in me and the young people are saying 
I don't know how to talk to an old person. It's kind of scary, you know, and they seem judgmental and all of that. And it's this gridlock of fear that it, once you start to unlock it, some wonderful things can happen. Wow. Well, thank you for the book, first of all. Thank you for the perspective you bring in that work. And I'm looking forward to the next one. <laughs> thank, you. thank you, Nathan. You know, I love, I love, I love Dumbo Feather. I love your spirit, your, your questions, and the, the things that interest you. And uh, I'm curious, actually, um, how you're spending your idea. How I'm spending my birthday? Yeah. Yeah, well, I I have designed the birthday party I wanted, which is that I have two sisters uh, who live in Chicago, which is about three hours away. They are coming up here to Madison, Wisconsin. Um, we are going to be joined by my beloved granddaughter, who's 27 and who lives here in town, and her boyfriend, a, a young woman, a remarkable young woman, whom my wife and I helped raise. And... Um, we, we're going to sit around and tell family stories. My my granddaughter is very eager to hear my sister's versions of these family stories. Ah, because yeah. in my in my yeah. version of these stories, you know, I always win. But she knows that that she knows <laughs> that that's baloney, and yeah. she wants to hear my sister's rag on me for a while uh, with you in this place it's going to be very interesting. it's going to be it's going to be a parker roast you know and my wife and my wife sharon will of course be involved in that and so we're going to we're going to eat a lot of good food and have have, have several cakes as far as i'm concerned oh beautiful my wife is a health food nut so i'm i'm fantasizing right now you know this this really <laughs> The cake thing isn't really going to happen. Yeah, we will we'll probably <laughs> have free, rice. dairy free, all the things. Yeah, right, or rice cakes or something. <laughs> rice cakes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is going to be fun. So we'll have a happy birthday. Thank you very much. Love my sisters a lot, and I'm eager to share this with them. The learning never stops with Parker. A huge thank you to him for all he's shared across the years. And be sure to check out his latest book, On the Brink of Everything. You can read our first interview with Parker in issue 44 of Dumbo Feather magazine, or see more of his work on our website. This podcast was produced by Lizzie Martin, and the music you hear is by Dennis Liu. For more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. This podcast is supported by our friends at Impact Investment Group and Giant Leap, a venture capital fund that invests in businesses doing good in the world. One of Giant Leap's key themes is health and well-being, which means that they look for innovative businesses improving physical and mental well-being in communities. Impact Investment Group is also a B Corp, a group of businesses dedicated to social and environmental change, while still making a buck. You can read more about Impact Investment Group by visiting dumbofeather.com forward slash by better by bee.